Hi, my name's Nicole. I'm sugar addict, bulimic, um, compulsive overeater. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak. Um, I'm really going to try to recall that uh, this is a, um, or recall, uh, keep in mind that this is a newcomer meeting. Um, I may not do a great job at that, but I'll try and keep that in mind. Um, so uh, what it was like, um, I was a pretty, uh, I was a normal sized kid. Uh, I was a very tall kid. Uh, I grew up fast. Um, so much so that I have stretch marks to prove it. And then in junior high, everyone caught up with me. So um, I'm 5'7", but I was like 5'6 in the fifth grade. So I was always taller than everyone. Um, I, I was very, I, I think that my, um, my love of candy, I don't think that there was anything really too different about that than other little kids love of candy. Um, it just, it developed. Uh, and so that's kind of where, uh, you know, things sort of started to change and I'll get into that, but that's kind of like kid stuff where I really feel like my eating disorders started, um, was, uh, in junior high. I'm an adult child of two alcoholic parents. One of them is in recovery, um, which I'm super grateful for. And one of them isn't. And, uh, my parents loved me, but the alcoholism got in the way of any sort of healthy demonstration of that love. It also got in the way of any healthy, um, models of communication. They didn't have it growing up. And so they didn't have it to pass on to me. Um, I do like to say, uh, that I was in a middle-class family only because oftentimes, when people hear eating disorder, you know, um, growing up with alcoholic parents, uh, there's a sort of social message out there that it's some sort of wife beater situation. And, and it's like, no, you know, uh, we lived in a really nice neighborhood in a really nice house. I went to a really nice school. Um, and the particular flavor of insanity around that is that I was supposed to be grateful. Um, for growing up in that kind of environment. I wasn't allowed to dissent or have any complaints of any kind. Um, and also, uh, my parents, they drank beer and wine, and it was very expensive beer, and it was very expensive wine, so they were foodies. Now, the fact that they drank a bottle of wine and a six-pack of bottled, you know, fancy imported beer every night, um, somehow that didn't count. So that's just a little bit of uh, the background. And the reason why that becomes extremely relevant is that um, my dad started to make a lot of money and that's when we sort of entered what I call the dark years. Um, so growing up, I was kind of the form of uh, my parents' uh, alcoholism was really sort of neglect. I was an only child at that time. And so as long as I wasn't bleeding and on fire, uh, you know, they really didn't get involved. And I enjoyed school and I was a good student and I got tested to go into an advanced, into a 
a program that was for smart kids. And so I got a lot of attention and good attention at school. And I was a tomboy. And so when puberty hit, my family, my family life, my brother was born. My parents were not prepared for it. My dad's making more money. The alcoholism has progressed. And I become incredibly unhappy. And I was not prepared for a couple of things. I wasn't prepared for the the chaos that was happening at home. I wasn't prepared to be um, the built-in nanny babysitter. So I went from neglect to exploitation. And I, I, and yet at the same time, you know, all of my friends at school, like, you know, we're trying to just be normal kids and act like normal kids. I'm not allowed to have any complaints because I live in a nice house and my parents, I had very good looking parents, you know, so much so that people would see pictures of my parents and go, that's your, that's your dad. That's your mom. I'm like, yeah, I know. Okay. Um, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, so I think that like the very first semester of seventh grade, I gained 60 pounds and it was a couple of things. It was the seventh, you know, junior high, you know, it started in sixth grade, certainly, but junior high, you know, we were supposed to be like, who are you going with? You know, who do you have a crush on? Who do, it just, the, the nature of the game completely changed. And I was absolutely not prepared for that. And so there was gaining the weight um, as a way of sort of desexualizing my body because no one wanted the, the fat girl to have a crush on you. Um, and no one was attracted to the fat girl. You know, this is, you know, in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s. So, and then the other thing that happened is, is that, um, my dad is a bully. Um, his dad was a colonel in the air force and there was definitely corporal punishment and quite a bit of it. And so my, what my dad was able to do was my dad never hit, hit me, never hit my brother, never hit my mom, but he postured. And when I was really young, he would a couple times there were holes in the walls where my dad had punched the wall. So the threat of violence was, was around. And, um, and I, so I think the gaining the weight was that I needed to take up some space and I needed to have some bulk behind me in case of any sort of attack. So those two things, the idea of, um, desexualizing my body, making myself actually physically bigger, um, really sort of worked. Now, I want to dilate a little bit here because, you know, at this point, I could have done many different things. I could have done drugs. I could have done alcohol. I could have done so many different things. So the reason why I think food worked for me is, again, that it reshaped my physical body and um, I needed to be sober from the neck up. Like I was the designated driver in my family and I needed to be on alert and aware. Um, and so whereas my parents sort of drank their alcohol, I feel that I ate mine. And then if you do the research, um, you know, there is a link between alcoholism and sugar addiction. 
And then also, uh, sugar is a natural painkiller, and uh, white flour produces dopamine, I think. I've forgotten the details, but you guys can research this. So you can imagine that um, having this food uh, was very, first of all, it was accessible. There was no age limit on it. I could buy it anytime I wanted it. Um, and also, it was in the house. Um, and, but I think that the other thing that's really important is, is that there I am with parents who love me, who have no tools for living to teach me. And I have no place to go because of their behavior. I don't feel safe going to them with my feelings. I feel alienated and different from my peers because it appears to me, whether it's true or not, that they're having some sort of normal childhood experience and I'm not. So I am alone with my feelings, with the idea that there is no safe place for me to go with them. So I can't regulate my feelings in a normal, natural, healthy way. And how you do that is it in order to reg emotionally regulate, humans need other humans to emotionally regulate. That's how you emotionally regulate. Well, there's a couple things. That means I have to find someone that I can share my insides with. Not up here, but how I'm feeling on the inside, which means I have to feel like safe enough to do it. And if there's anything I'm ashamed of, I'm not going to share that with you. So first of all, I don't have a model on how to do it. And second of all, I'm afraid to tell you how I'm really feeling. So food quickly became my best friend. It was completely 100% reliable. Um, so that's kind of how it started. And I didn't really have a big journey with the dieting. I think I tried it. Um, I started to lose weight. I started to get um, positive attention. And then my mom made my dad go in and be positive because as soon as I started gaining weight, my mom, I became my mom's home improvement project. I mean, you know, and fixing me was like at the top of her list. Um, and so, uh, when my dad came in and said, Oh, you're look, you know, and I knew my mom had made him do that, that I went off the diet. I, I did. And that's again, only in looking back, do I realize like, I can't, I can't be smaller in this world. This world is really unsafe and weight makes me feel safe because at that point I was 16 and I, and things at home really got bad. Like it just went from 12 to 18 were like, you know, the dark years and the toxicity level and the, and what was happening in my home was so bad that at 13, I had a box and I had gone around the house to find my birth certificate, all of my favorite pictures, my baby blanket, anything, put them in a box so that any moment if I needed to leave, I could. And I wouldn't have any reason to come back home. So I didn't have the, the dieting thing because like I said, I was kind of invested in just being big. Now, parad not paradoxically, the dichotomy of that is, is that I didn't like being the fat girl at all, you know, that was, but it was a price I was willing to pay, but I didn't like it. And every day I would fantasize about losing weight. 
I would like one of my favorite fantasies was that an alien would come down, some alien race would come down with super technology. And in exchange for their super technology, I would share my experience as a human being. And then they could genetically modify my body to exactly what I wanted. And my favorite fantasy was to go over exactly how I wanted them to modify my body. And then I would, and then once I had that body, my life would begin. That's when my life would begin. So, up and but until that happened, I felt that I was cast to play a part in a play that I didn't fucking agree to. I don't like this fucking planet. I don't understand these fucking rules. Who the fuck are these crazy people who are supposed to be in charge of me that I don't want to have anything to do with? I mean, and again, the thing about high school is you're really starting to learn about the world and about the history that we had. And so it's like, well, why aren't people doing anything about this? You know what I mean? So again, like that rage against the machine. I was like, yeah, let's rage against the machine. Um, So... The problem with that, though, is that every day I was refusing to be me. I didn't want to be this girl. You know what I mean? It's literally like, again, like with the play where there's the leading lady. There are some, you know, funky, fun, like, you know, sidekicks. And there are these like extras or they're called NPC players And I felt like I had been cast as an NPC player on a good day. On a bad day, I was the fat girl. Now, I also have a very strong, aggressive personality. So I was not a meek fat girl. I was like, come at me, bitch. Like, let's do this. You know what I mean? Like, I could be up in your face. I didn't have any problem with that. Um, So I wasn't going to sit there and take it quietly. But I knew... I knew how society viewed people who were not thin. And I had a mother who was a professional cheerleader in that she was a a full-time aerobics instructor um, who used to be a cheerleader and whose best friend was homecoming queen. And I was like some sort of huge disappointment for her, but I was smarter than she had ever been. So it was this weird thing. On the one hand, she was super proud of me. On the other hand, she spent every day that she paid attention to me trying to fix me. There's something else that I kind of want to talk about before. So I'm getting to the what it's what I'm covering the what it was like in my relationship with food. And the other thing that I kind of want to touch on is this story that food got me out of bed in the morning. There were times in my 20s um, where You know, I'm uncovering. I had gone into another program at 23. I was learning all about alcoholism. I didn't know my parents were alcoholic. I thought alcoholics were wife beaters. They had hard liquor and a paper bag. And anything other than that was just, you were just, you liked wine a lot. Um, But uh, there was was a day where I woke up and I was really feeling depressed. And then I thought about breakfast and I thought about going out to breakfast and all of a sudden I had a reason to get up and get out of bed. The other thing is, is that um, I remember getting up. I love to take myself out to breakfast by myself. I remember doing that coming home. I did that around like 738 
Um, and then at 10 o'clock, a friend called and said, do you want to, you know, want to have breakfast together? I said, yeah, let's do it. Like those, and I, of course I didn't tell her that I'd already had breakfast. I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. So, um, I had kind of resigned myself to just being a big girl. So that's not what got me in the meetings. What got me in the meetings is that I didn't, I was in another program and I didn't want to go shopping. And my friend, who happened to be my roommate, started asking me about why I didn't want to go shopping. And I was like, you know, I shop once a year, you know. And then she kept asking me questions like, why don't oh, I don't like to try and close like because she was in the rooms and I didn't know that. So she was trying to, you know, she's like, now, why don't you like to go shopping? You know, oh, you don't like to try and close. OK, so so why don't you like, oh, I don't like to look at my body in the mirror what? You know what I mean? I'm, you know, and it's like, yeah, I don't like, you know, I just kind of like to avoid it. I don't want to do anything. Oh, hey, do you want to go to this OA meeting with me? Now, at that point, I had already been in a 12-step program. So I was like, sure, you know what I mean? Whatever. I don't fucking care. Um, so I went to the meeting with her. I walk in and I'm sitting there. I had no idea that there was such a thing as Overeaters Anonymous, none, zero, and so I, when she, it's like she could have said, hey, do you want to go to Constantinople, and I would have just said yes, like, I didn't even know what it was that we were going to, but I was like, I, I loved her, she was a close friend, whatever, I, I sat there, and all of a sudden, I'm in a room about this big, you know, this many people, with men in the room, and everything, and they start sharing, and I, I and they're reading the steps in the beginning and I'm like this is a thing like this is a thing and other women were starting to share about their relationship to food how they felt about their body how they felt about wearing clothes how they and I cried now let me tell you something about the crying thing at 4 years old I decided to stop crying because I just felt completely alone in my family and there was no safe place for me to go to. I am, I'm 52. I have done so much therapy so that I could cry. I am so far from not being a crier. Like one of my best friends is a crier and I'm like, that is your superpower because I spend a fuck ton of money to get back to a place where when I'm upset, I can cry. Like I can't cry. You know what I have to do? I have to go like, oh, I'm upset. How am I going to get myself to cry? Oh, I got to watch a movie about fucking someone else going through some sort of like thing so that I can like tear up for them. And then once I'm teared up for them, I have to like do what my therapist told me. I have to move into the grief and recognize that I'm crying for myself and then figure out what the fuck I'm crying about. You know what I mean? So that's me today. So when I tell you that I sat at that meeting and cried, like, and I've never cried at another meeting, like never, I mean, nothing, because I was having this incredible feeling of identification. I was having this feeling like I'm not the only one, and I was terrified. I was like, I felt busted, like so busted, like nailed up against the wall, busted. And the way that I explain it is like, 
you know, I was the rock for a lot of my friends. You know, I think like I was forced to grow up really fast. I was the oldest. My mom treated me like a therapist. She didn't really want to be my mom. She wanted to be my best friend. And I was like, you know, I already have a best friend. And if I did have a best friend and need one, I certainly wouldn't have you apply. You know what I mean? So I just was like the rock. And so for me to like, so the way the analogy that I use is like for those of us who remember Charlie Brown and the peanuts and everything and that character, Linus, like Linus, if you remember in the strip, he was the guy who would like quote scripture, you know what I mean? And do all this philosophical, amazing stuff. But he walked around with a blankie, right? No one said any shit about the blankie. He's walking around with his blankie, like telling you like scripture and stuff like that and giving like wise like advice, you know? And then, so what it felt like was like I was Linus, okay? And now I'm 29 years old and someone wants to talk to me about my fucking blankie. I'm like, no, we're not talking about the blankie. Like that's what it felt like, the incredible terror that all of a sudden... I knew that if I was at that meeting, it meant it was time for me to talk about the food. It was time for me to start talking about my relationship to my body. It was time for me to start talking about how even at that point, so I was 29, six years of program, six years of intensive therapy, I was still very emotionally isolated. Like the progress that I had made is that I had a therapist at that point for six years and slowly I had started to share stuff with her. My friends, no. My best friend, here's my favorite thing to do. Let's see if you identify with this. I'm going through a hard time. I go through the hard time. I talk to my therapist about it. When I'm over the hard time, and understand what the whole thing is about, then I'll start to tell my friends about it. Oh yeah, I was going through a very hard time back then, you know what I mean, that I didn't tell anyone about, but it's okay, I'm okay now, and I figured it out. So realizing that I had created a life that on the outside looked really successful, but on the inside, I had I was still completely emotionally isolated. So then let's talk about coming into the rooms. I came into the room. So from that day, you know, again, good student, right? I'm like, went to Berkeley. I'm like, good student. I know how to do this thing. I treated OA because I didn't know any different. I treated OA and 12-step in general like a class. I'm like, all right. So this is a class that we meet three times a week. I went to college. I know about three times a week. You know what I mean? Here's some homework. Get a sponsor. Oh, you mean like a TA? Okay, I'll get a TA. You know what I mean? Like you got some writing to do. You got some reading to do. Fine. Not a problem. And that's exactly how I treated it. And I treated everyone who was in the rooms as if they were classmates. I don't know about you, but in all my classes, I'm like, yeah, I can be totally social. Talk to you. No, I don't want your number. And no, we're not going to have a relationship outside of this room. I wasn't consciously thinking of it. That's just how I lived my life. You know, I was definitely one of those people, and I'm an introvert, where it's like, believe it or not, um, where it was just like I had a few close friends, and yet I was very social. It's called social introversion. So 
I, I, for the first eight months, I had a pink cloud abstinence. You want to know why? Who the fuck can't, can't follow a, a diet plan for eight months when you're going, it was like a free Weight Watchers. I didn't treat it that way out of disrespect. I treated it that way because I had no idea what this was really about. And I didn't find out until after eight months when I suddenly wasn't eating perfect food. I had a sponsor and I kept calling her about like, oh, I was really thinking too much about this. And I think I had too much vegetables and da, 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 da. And she's kept saying, Nicole, it's not about the food. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's all about the food. But she was like, it's not about the food. So at eight months, I lose my abstinence. And um, I don't know if we'd even call it abstinence. Maybe I had a slip or something, right? And so then I realized like, oh shit, I got to keep doing this thing. This is like, and then I started to get the one day at a time thing because I'm like, not right away, but slowly the one day at a time, like, oh, okay. So let me, let me see if I understand this. All right. So I'm going to have a food plan that I'm going to follow and I got to stick to it no matter how I feel that day, you know, and I got to eat at my regular times and I got to eat a balanced meal, not a diet, balanced meal, so that in between my meals, if I'm having any feelings, I don't get to put food in my mouth. That's, that's, that's what you're saying? It's like, yes, Nicole, that's what we're saying. Okay, all right. Man, if you want to find out what you're eating over, fucking you put down the food. You're going to find out really fast what the food does for you. So that really started for me the whole journey in 12 step. Like like I said, the first 8 months were me thinking this was a free way and pay. After the first 8 months is when I was like, I wow, this is wow, this is big. This is big. Like you are basically, because by that point I had so much armor on me. And basically what they were saying is, Nicole, we want to start taking pieces of your armor off. I'm like, okay, first of all, ow. Okay. Ow. Second of all, it's like, every little tiny piece of armor that you took off, I feel less armored. You know, and now I got to go through the world feeling less armored. So a lot of people come in. I want to talk about the weight. A lot of people come in. They do all these steps. They do all the emotional work in the steps, which, by the way, definitely do the steps. If you don't do the steps and if you don't do the fellowship, you're not going to get the promises. That's how it works. You know what I mean? It's kind of like water and heat. Like if you want to have tea, but you don't want to use any water and you don't want to use any heat, well, then you're not going to get any tea. I mean, it's kind of a formula. So some people come in and they don't lose any weight, but they're doing all this work. Be careful not to judge them because you have no idea what their journey is. And then you find out that after they've done all this work, the weight kind of falls off. That's great. Some people come in, they drop all this weight and... And then they, you know, they keep doing the work on how to keep it off. Good. Happy for those people. Not my story. 
my story was very frustrating for me. So like I said, my top weight was about, oh, I don't know if I said this. My top weight was about 200 and I lost a total of 60 pounds. Yes. However, I actually got too small and that was due to some illness and some trauma. So, um, I lost 10 pounds every two years. I did not sign up for that. Okay. Let me tell you that. Here's what I think kind of happened. I had to adjust to being smaller in the planet. I had to process. It's almost like every bite that I took of food that um, had any sort of emotion attached to it. So again, I have a feeling something I'm not comfortable with in order to emotionally regulate it like a normal person. I need to talk to someone. I need to be able to be heard and seen and validated and then get to some sort of constructive conclusion for myself, maybe take an action, maybe not. And then I'm free of the emotion, right? I move on. When I don't do that, I eat it. I, I always imagine that for every bite that I took, like the emotion was in that bite. And then that bite got converted to a fat cell and then it's stored. And so then in recovery, you know, every fucking fat cell before I can let it go, I've got to process it. I got to write, do some writing. I got to do whatever. So for me, I lost 10 pounds every two years. And here's the tricky fucking thing. So I'd lose 10 pounds and I'd feel good. And I'd be like, I'm doing it. It's working. And then I would want to lose more weight and then I would get stuck in this thing about, well, if I want to lose more weight, I'm not accepting my body as it is today. I'm wanting to fix my body and lose more weight. So then I would get stuck into this thing around, I'm doing it again. I am not accepting myself exactly where I'm at. You know, I'm basically doing the whole, like, you need to lose weight again the rejecting of myself. So I got, I had to get to a place, not everyone's like this. I had to get to a place where I was like, all right, fine. If, if I don't get any smaller, but my insights get better, that's fine. I'll do it. I'll do it. And you can't fake that. You know what I mean? Like I can't fake to myself self-acceptance. And so until I got to a place of self-acceptance, I wouldn't release any weight. So slowly I released the weight and then 5'7", my standard weight up until, you know, turning 50, I was a, I was a size 10. I was a medium. So now I don't want to spend too much time on this because I don't want to scare people. You know, a lot of speakers in the room. Keep that in mind. There's like a million people in OA, which means there are a million ways of working this program. And million different experiences. My experiences, when I lost the weight, um, I had trauma memories come up. And that was extremely devastating to me. Because I didn't need any more memories. You know what I mean? Like, I, I didn't even... I already had a really high ACE score. So I didn't need trauma memories. And so that is my first major relapse. And that is when I discovered bulimia. And so for me, a lot of people have different relationships with bulimia. For me, bulimia was the relief of purging. For me, bulimia was the, and I, 
I didn't plan to have a bulimic episode and I was a periodic. What would happen is, is that suddenly I would just keep eating and I couldn't stop myself and I didn't want to stop myself. And I knew, I started to know like, oh, I think I know what I'm doing now. Because if I got to a place of being uncomfortably full, I couldn't actually handle it. So I wasn't, I was, I've never been a binger. I've been a grazer, like my whole life. I wouldn't sit and eat this much food because I don't like being uncomfortable in my body. What I would do is, you give me this much food, I'll eat this much food all day long. So at the end of the day, we've eaten the same amount, you know, as someone who binges, but I just graze all the time. So I would get to a place where I would get so uncomfortably full that I would force myself to throw up. And that's what I wanted. I wanted because I had all of this rage around what was happening. And so I would get and this because you know 13 years program recovery all that stuff I did all of this work to you know uncover trauma memories I'm like I felt fucking shafted I was like you got to be kidding me you know and so I was and also not to mention the trauma memories itself around like all the anger around that so I would eat so that I could have this feeling of purging and and after you purge your body does go through this like incredible endorphin thing because it thinks you're sick and it's like hey girl hang on I'm coming you know what I mean and so it it just became like that for me now fortunately I was in the room so I had a very short time of of bulimia I think I only had a couple of months maybe three months of bulimia um, because the disease progresses so my experience in my first relapse is I was a good little student. I had really worked the program. I was really getting involved in service. I was really doing all of that. But the one thing that I didn't really have was a couple of things. One is, is that I was still treating, I was still treating people like they were my classmates. Um, it's just that we were in this lifelong PhD program. The other thing that I was doing was I was sort of phoning it in around the God thing. Uh, I don't believe in ethical monotheism. Um, I was very lucky to uh, come into program uh, in the Bay Area. There's a lot of like, it's, you know, a lot of people believe anything they want. And uh, most programs don't use the word God. They use higher power. Well, when that relapse happened with that trauma memory and my life was decimated and I had a, I ended up getting really sick because um, 36 years of um, PTSD and adrenaline had actually destroyed my body uh, and I ended up collapsing from exhaustion. It was like my life's dark night of the soul. And let me tell you something about the dark night of the soul. Some people may have experienced this. It is balls to the wall. Like, girl, do you believe in something or don't you? Because you need to decide. You need to decide because your whole life depends on if you believe in something or don't you. And that's an inside job. That's a totally inside job. And so I had to take things, parts that I believed intellectually and create for myself a higher power. Now, let me tell you something. I didn't have an answer. What I had was a muscle memory of program. And I was, that's when I started going to, thank you, a meeting a day, 
there were times during that horrible three-year period, but really the first six months were the worst, where I was, I, there was a day I went to four meetings in one day. Because at that point, the only thing I had faith in was the process of recovery. And so the process of recovery became my higher power. I was like, all right, I believe in this. Now, I have more time around realizing, well, what is the process of recovery? For me, the process of recovery is all of these exercises and rituals and writing and steps and traditions that that is about how do I love myself exactly as I am? How do I learn to love others exactly as they are? And, and loving each other includes boundaries and it includes um, empathy and compassion. So the process of recovery for me is a big, huge PhD program in how to love. And, and it starts with love of self, um, love of community, love of others, love of, you know, whatever, and then romantic love. If I don't have those things and, and I go for the romantic love, I'm trying to make the romantic love all of those other things and it's bound to fail. That's my opinion on that and my experience. So what it's like today, what it's like today is I have a life beyond my wildest dreams. Here's the fucked up thing. It looks nothing like what I wanted. So let's go back to that play that I got cast in, right? So what I didn't know was happening is, is that, and this, I'm going to make this judgmental to, to prove a point. I think everyone, whatever. But so I get cast for this extra over here who's not in the limelight, nothing like that. Well, what no one told me is, is like, okay, these people who are playing a lead are going to be doing some romantic love avoidant love addict drama through the course of the entire fucking play. These people over here, they're going to be living through the main characters. Like, that's their whole thing. They'll probably get their own reality TV show. You know what I mean? Like, and good on them. This person over here, you're going to be so inundated with love for yourself and friends who love you and you are going to build a community and you're going to work at a job that you absolutely respect and you're going to have a boss who totally like is amazing to you that you you don't want to emulate and who's invested in mentoring you to greatness you know what i mean like that's gonna and no one's gonna give a shit about that you know what i mean and you want to know why because there's no drama in your life girl no one cares you know what i mean that's why we can't have you star in this play because you're not, there's nothing really dramatic happening for you. But what you're going to have is you're going to have a, a fellowship. Thank you. I'm aware of the time. A fellowship. And because I've be joined OA, I didn't, I stopped attending. I'm like, attendance doesn't work. It carried me so far. And then I had to decide to join. And what it means to join is now we are together on an island. We're not in a classroom. We're survivors of a shipwreck. 
and we're on an island and it's live together, die alone, you know, and I already had the choice to die alone. And something in me said, no, we're not going to die alone. You know, and I'm not talking about whatever I'm talking about at 13 years, you know what I mean? Balls to the wall, night of the dark soul, like, you know, and what it also means is I'm seeing Kim. I love Kim. I'm seeing Janice. I love Janice, Linda, um, Lana. I know these people, even though I don't talk to them very much. At one point I did, you know what I mean? I care about these people. I care about what happened. If they called me, I pick up, I'd be like, Hey girl, what's going on? You know, I've joined because we're all on this island together. I now belong somewhere. I belong to myself. I belong to my higher power and I definitely belong to the process of recovery. So thanks for letting me share. Thank you so much, Nicole. That was great. Um, we'll now pause for our seventh tradition, which says we are self-supporting.